And so we continue in our look at the Bible through uh, the eyes of, the, uh, of, of, of a child. And um, what great pictures those are, I think. I love that animation. And uh, if you do, please uh, let me know. And if you don't love it, um, let Betsy know. And I, um, but I just think uh, it, is, uh, it is great at depicting this. And I hope and many of you have bought the book, and I think that that's wonderful. And um, it was great. Shaughnessy uh, last week was so excited, and uh, this is truth, um, that, uh, that we could talk about the same story as, as she had talked about during her own Sunday school. And so again, I keep encouraging you that a part of the reason why we are doing this is so that we can talk to those who are younger than us, uh, and that they can talk to those who are older than them about what it is that we are learning together. And so on this second Sunday of our series, we are uh, looking, uh, as you've already seen, at what is oftentimes called the fall. And so I will be reading from Genesis chapter 3, from whence this story comes, and I will just be reading the first 13 verses of that particular passage. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard you. Or I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent tricked me, and I hate. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for this day as we join together yet again to read your scripture, to hear your words, to understand who it is that you are and who it is that you have called us to be. And so I pray this morning, Lord, that the words of my mouth And the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. Well, it didn't take very long for things to go awry, did it? 
I mean, just one chapter before, just last Sunday, we were talking about how wonderful everything was, that God had had made this beautiful creation. And why had God created all of this? Because he loves us, right? I mean, there it is, the birds are are chirping away and singing, the the horses are are galloping, the the fish are leaping up in the water, there's a a cool, gentle breeze going through, the smell of flowers is, is wafting through the air. Everything is wonderful, everything is perfect, everything is just right. And then... In the midst of all that is good and right, a question was asked. It's not really a a large question, not an especially provocative question at all, just a small little question. Did God really say that you shouldn't eat of any fruit? And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, introduced into this beautiful, created world comes doubt. Question, does God really love me? Is God keeping something from me? Is there more to this life than what God has already told me? And in a moment, when that question is asked, Eve and Adam move from contentment to anxiety. Am I, are we missing something? And quite frankly, it is a move from contentment to anxiety that we continue to wrestle with today, is it not? I don't really remember very many lines from movies or TV shows. Some people, you know, they can just tell you lines from lots of lines from lots of movies. I can watch a movie and three minutes later, I have no idea what any of the lines were from that movie. But I do remember one particular line from from the television show Seinfeld, right? Everyone, most people love Seinfeld, right? And I I remember long ago when Seinfeld was on now and, and Jerry Seinfeld was talking about men and remote controls. And he was talking about how they they love to flip through the channels. And Jerry Seinfeld explains it like this. He says, for men, it's never about what is on. It's always about what else is on. And so what you're doing for most of us as we're sitting there and watching a show, we can't help but begin wondering, is there a better show on right now? And so rather than just simply sitting there and enjoying whatever it is, we're flipping through. Surely there might just be something better. The sense of contentment is never there just in case because no one wants to show up the next day at work and say, hey, did you see this? And you think, ah, I got stuck on a show and I didn't see it. All of us kind of wrestle with that, right? There, we've talked about this a little bit before. Sometimes I, you know, I'll, I'll be sitting there on my sofa and be like, man, my life is incredible. I've got, I've got three beautiful little girls. I've got a, a beautiful wife. We, we moved into this house that we, that we really love. And, and we're, we're like a half a mile from Bub's Burgers. We can like walk there. Everything is perfect. And I'm remarkably content. And all it takes is for me to log on to Facebook. And all of a sudden, oh, well, there's Jimmy in Hawaii. That looks like a lot of fun. 
Wow, there's Becky. Wow, how did she get such a big house? And, and then there's Judy. She lives a quarter of a mile from Bob's Burgers. And all of a sudden, just like that, I am discontented. All of a sudden, I'm living in anxiety and wondering, well, what else is it that I'm missing? Who else is, is living a better life than me? What, what, what else is under there that I have not yet discovered? In that moment, I join with Adam and Eve in moving from contentment to an anxiety and wondering if there isn't more. Now, it would be easy, of course, for us just to say, well, this is just greed, and that's certainly a part of what this is. But I, I think that there's probably more to it than just greed and wanting more than what we currently have. I, I think there's really, there's, there's more to it than that because really what's happening here, and I think that the children's storybook Bible did a great job actually of interpreting this story because really the underlying thing that's going on here that is unspoken is a question of whether or not God is holding back something from us. Whether or not God knows something that we would love and yet is not giving it to us. And so the underlying question is, does God really love us? I mean, if God really loves us and the boundaries that he has given to us in Scripture, the boundaries and what he tells us we should and shouldn't do, then those make sense. Okay, we can, we can do that. But what if? What if God doesn't really love us and there's actually some great things that are outside the bounds like eating of a fruit or having more and more? And so right here from the very beginning of scripture in the first three chapters, we see the theme that we will see again and again and again in the Bible. That one, God loves us. And two, we struggle with actually believing that. We struggle with really trusting in that love. And so we constantly are wrestling with this. It's a question really of wholeness and salvation as we sometimes use those words of what does it mean for us to actually accept the love of God and really believe that God desires what is best that. It's important for me to have a little caveat here. This is something that I've talked about a lot already, but we are in the Reformed tradition, and you may feel like you're Presbyterian or not, but I want you to know you are because this is a Presbyterian church. And we are Reformed, which again always means that we begin not with what we do for God, but with what? What God has done for us. And so often we, especially we Americans, we want to start with what we can do. And so we begin with the rules and all the regulations and we say, okay, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this. And that ends up enslaving us. But where we are supposed to begin is on this understanding and this acceptance of God's love for us. Because when we do that, then it begins to make sense to us what, what it is that God is asking of us. You see, then if we really believe God loves us, and even though we want to live self-centeredly and we want to just kind of stay in our own homes and not really love our neighbors, nonetheless, to try to love our enemies, if we really believe God loves us, then we will follow God in that way out of joy because we know God cares for us. If we really believe God loves us and we have embraced that, 
then we can choose to not live a life of greed and to give to those who are poor and in need because we know it is for our own good because God loves us so. But if we don't start there, then all we're doing is continuing to wrestle and fight, trying to earn this love. And God says the love is already there if you will but receive it. Adam and Eve, they decided to not trust in that love. And so all of a sudden, they're feeling anxious, they're feeling vulnerable, they're feeling naked, they are naked, and they are afraid. And so what happens? God comes out and says, where are you? Now, when I was growing up, I always thought that was a weird question, right? I mean, first of all, you'd think you'd see two naked people, right? No matter how wooded it is. But secondly, of course, who is he? He's God. Not a trick question. He's God. So you would hope that he would know where they were. But this week, as I was doing some reading, I read up on something a rabbi said that I thought was very enlightening. The rabbi said, perhaps God is not really asking where they are as much as he is asking Adam and Eve whether or not they know where they are. Right? It's kind of like when someone calls you on the phone and they're on the road and they say, hey, I'm lost. I don't know where you live. You can't just give them instructions. At first, you have to ask them, where are you? And they have to figure out where they are. Before I can help them, they have to be there and readily be able to tell me exactly where they are. Which I think means the story of Adam and Eve is a great opportunity for all of us to ask that question Where are you? Where are you on this journey in embracing the love of God? Now that is kind of a salvation question, if you will. And it's a little bit nerve-wracking for most Presbyterians. Most of us are Presbyterian because of the fact that we don't want to ever have to come down and do any kind of salvation story. I mean, that's, we get kind of nervous about that, many of us, right? When I was growing up, I remember being a teenager, and, and I'd be sitting there, and there'd be this huge, impassioned sermon, right? And then the music would be going. Maybe they'd be playing Just As I Am. Everyone know that, right? And, and then the, the, the preacher would stand up, and he said, If you know that you know that you know that you know, if you were to die tonight that you would go to heaven, then you stay right there. But if you don't know that you know that you know that you know if you die tonight that you go to heaven, then you better get down here. Right? And as a teenager, man, I was booking it. I was down there. Because the only thing as a teenager that I knew that I knew that I knew that I knew was that I had really bad acne. That was the only thing I knew. Everything else was up for grabs. And so it makes us, I realize, perhaps a little bit nervous, and I'm not going to ask you to, to come down. I'm not going to say, hey, bow your head and, and raise your hand. But I am going to ask you, because I think it's an important question that we all too often fail to ask, which is the simple question of where are you? Where are you on this journey of fully embracing the love of God? Some of us, we've been on this journey for a while. And so we, 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 we usually, we're in a pretty good place and we fully embrace that. Others of you, my guess is perhaps this is most of us, we, we wrestle with it. There are times when we embrace that love of God and you can tell by the way that we're leading our lives that this is something that we love, we trust in God's love. But I have a feeling there may be others of us, perhaps even here this morning, who have never for one reason or another been able to fully embrace 
that love of God. We always feel like we need to do more, that we're, that we're falling short. We always see the places that we fail. And so I think it's important for us from time to time, and I would say especially today during this story, to ask that particular question. To wonder whether or not God is asking you right now, where are you? And so what happens? God says, where are you? And, and, and finally, you know, Adam says, I'm, here I am, right? I'm, I'm the naked dude that's over here and, I'm, I, you know, you found me. And, and, and so we have a great opportunity. What happens after we ask the question of where are you? How, how do we respond? And so God asks Adam, right? What have you done? Did you eat of this? Did you stop trusting that I loved you? And what does Adam say? Absolutely, you know I did. Okay, we got one, one, uh, one nod here or one head shake. No. What does he say? She made me do it, right? Husbands know that line, right? And so then he turns to Eve. And of course, what does Eve say? Oh, yep, he's right. It was my fault. She's looking around for the serpent, right? So all of a sudden, what you have here is immediately you have this blame and these excuses. This is one of my favorite stories in all the Bible because it resonates so much. Why is it that excuses and blame roll off our tongues like this? There's nothing faster in the world, I don't think, than when you have been accused of something and how quickly you can find somebody else to blame for it. But the reality is, as long as we are finding someone to blame, as long as we are finding excuses, and we can never really move forward in our understanding of God's love. It may surprise you to know that Megan and I, my wife and I, that we don't always agree on things. And, and that there are times even when we have what we call spirited discussions about certain matters. Some people would call them arguments, but we just call them spirited discussions. And it may surprise you even more, it surprises me, that sometimes it's actually my fault and so, and so we'll sit there, and it's fascinating to me. This will oftentimes happen right before we're supposed to be going to bed, and we'll have some kind of disagreement. Oftentimes I say something flippantly or, or something like that, and all of a sudden we'll be there, and, and she will say, hey, I didn't like that, or hey, why did you do that? And before you know it, I'm coming up with so many good reasons as to why I said what I said. And I'm telling you what, before you know it, an hour can have passed. Right? And I will keep coming up with great excuses and then maybe we'll have a little bit of space and I'll say, you know, I'm just going to go sit in the sofa in the living room and I'll, I'll go out there and then I'll, I'll come back in and then I'll say, oh yeah, I forgot another reason why it's actually your fault and not mine. And so, and we'll do that and then I'll go back and, and all this time, we're, we're wasting all of this time until finally, anybody else ever been in this situation? Okay, finally, but it's her fault or his fault, right? Finally, I will go in there and I will say, you're right. I'm sorry. And immediately, we're moving forward. Immediately, within three or four minutes, we're both sleeping. Immediately, our, our relationship is reconciled and we can continue to grow and move forward, but it doesn't happen until I finally admit 
that it was my fault. And one of the things I think that happens, of course, and one of the reasons why confession is so important in our tradition and in our understanding of what it means to be reconciled with God is not because God's sitting up there and he just says, I want to hear you say, I'm sorry. But it's because of the fact that God knows that until we can freely admit, you know what, I have struggled with trusting in your love, God. Until we can finally admit that, then we will never move forward in our relationship with God. And so here from the very beginning of Scripture, I think it's important for us to remember these first two stories because, again, it's what every other story is kind of based on in the Bible. The story of God's love for us and the story of the reality of how hard it is for us to fully embrace that love. We see it in our anxiety, in our fear, in our wondering whether or not God is really there. And it all is based on this reality, whether we know it or not, that we are questioning God's love for us. Does God really care for us? But if we can readily begin to admit that, if we can honestly engage in that, it seems to me that we can continue then to grow in this journey. I want you to know your brothers and sisters who you see sitting around you, they are here as your kind of traveling family. And one of the reasons that they are here is because of the fact that they wrestle with this as well. If you never ask the question, where am I? If you never wonder whether or not God is asking you the question, where are you? You probably would not be here. And so I want you to know that these people who are around you, me, Scott, that we are here to wrestle with those questions together. Again, some of you are fully embraced that love of God and you've received it and you've moved forward. Others of you wrestle and perhaps others of you have never really been able to say, I don't really trust it. And maybe, maybe you want to do that today. And so I want to offer you that opportunity and after the service is over, as soon as the service is over, there's going to be some folks over there by the cross. And I, I want to offer you the opportunity. This is not, you know, it could be, again, it could be whether or not this is the first time you've really said, I want to embrace that love. It could be, you know what, I've embraced it, but I mean, I'm still really wrestling with it. And if you just want someone to listen to you or to pray for you, I would encourage you to go over there for a few minutes and just allow someone to come alongside of you and say, we're on this journey together. Because it's important to know that the reason we've gathered is to not to try to impress people with how much we have received God's love, but it is to grapple with that together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so whether or not you do it today or tomorrow, I really encourage you at some point this week to ask that simple question, to hear the question that God is asking. Where are Sisters and brothers in Christ, where are you? My hope and my prayer is that you have embraced that love of God that he revealed in the creation story and that we have wrestled with every day since. Where are you? Amen.